Well, I took Sue to see a stage production of The Sound of Music last week down in Chicago. And this has been her favorite musical or favorite movie since childhood, so it was kind of fun. It was a surprise deal. Uh, but I, you know, I arranged it so we would double date with another comp couple who just happened to meet us at the train station and uh, went in for the big event. And afterwards, I was talking to this guy about how much fun it is to go into the city for some big show, whether it's a ball game or an off-Broadway production or whatever. And this, this friend of mine, he happens to be a small business owner, and so his company has season tickets for the Bears and the Bulls and the Blackhawks and the Cubs and even for that other Chicago baseball team. And he was saying, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a good time to go with a customer or a vendor and you bring them to a big event like this and there's a bonding that takes place. He said just recently one of his vendors announced that his wife's birthday was coming up and she's a big Paul McCartney fan. And he said, well, I just happen to have tickets to the next Paul McCartney concert. And so he gave them to the vendor and the vendor had a big night on the town with his wife and it just solidified their business relationship. I mean, wouldn't you love to have unlimited tickets to some, some big event, ball game, show, concert, whatever? You could invite all the friends that you want to join you. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got tickets to the biggest event in the universe. You've got all the tickets you want. You can invite as many friends and acquaintances as you want. What big event am I talking about? I'm talking about the marriage party that launches God's eternal kingdom. The marriage party that launches God's eternal kingdom. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, okay? This is the fourth installment in a five-part series called Your Kingdom Come. Your Kingdom Come. We're going to take a look at a parable of Jesus. If you would, get your outline out because Jesus is going to give us some instructions. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's your king. You want to know what he says, and you want to be able to do it. So I would encourage you to, uh, to jot something down. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 22 about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet that a great king prepares for his son, and then he sends servants out into the community to invite guests to come. Now this story, this, this parable, is a picture of something that is actually going to happen one day. Okay, the king in Jesus' parable is God himself. The son who's about to get married is Jesus Christ. And, and one day at the end of time, at the beginning of eternity, there's going to be a wedding. Jesus, the groom, is going to be united forever with his bride, which is made up of believers. You know, the, uh, the Bible says that the bride of Christ are all those who surrender their lives to him. <coughs> this event will launch the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus will, will then reign. Excuse me, I'm going to grab a little bit of this. Jesus will then reign over a new heaven and a new earth. Now the question is, who will make it into this everlasting kingdom? You know, who gets into this wedding banquet and the kingdom that follows? That's the question addressed by Jesus' parable in Matthew 22. Now, as we, we begin to look at the, the parable and interpret it and apply it to our lives, i got to warn you about something. It's a bit confusing, but Jesus mixes his metaphors in this story. Now, that's not something you're supposed to do, but I guess if you're Jesus, you could do what you want to do, right? What, what do I mean when I say he mixes his metaphors? 
Well, on the one hand, as I've already said to you, when the Bible talks about the bride that will be at this wedding banquet, it's talking about believers, followers of Jesus, people who've surrendered their lives to him. But in this parable, Jesus doesn't call his followers the bride at the wedding banquet. He refers to his followers as the guests who've been invited to the wedding banquet. So mixing metaphors a bit. In one sense, if you're a Christ follower, you're part of the bride of Christ. In another sense, you're a guest at the wedding banquet. And Jesus is not yet done mixing his metaphors because he adds a, a third twist. If you're a follower of his, you're, you're also one of the servants whom the king sends out into the community to invite other people to come. You following all this? So if you're a Christ follower, in one sense, you're the bride. In another sense, you're the wedding guest. In a third sense, you're a servant inviter who goes out and says, come, come to this big shindig. So Matthew 22, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on that third metaphor, that we're inviters. We're, we're inviters. You know how people get into the kingdom of God? They get in by invitation only. And you and I hold the invitations. So what are we going to do with them? This story gives us four instructions from King Jesus. So here's number one. Write this down. This is real obvious. Number one, invite. Okay? Invite. Let me read the opening verses of Matthew 22 to you, the beginning of this parable. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent servants to those who had been invited. This, by the way, is the first occurrence of that word. You're going to see it later on pop up in verse 4, in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 14. So every time you see it in your Bible, circle it. He sent servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. So the parable is all about... How you get in the kingdom of God? You get in by invitation only. If you're a Christ follower, you hold the invitations. Okay, you're the one who gets to disperse these invitations. That's our job, to invite. I was uh, working out at the health club some time ago, and a buddy who I've met there announced to me that he was going to be running for local political office. And he wondered if he could put a yard sign in my front yard. Now, usually because I'm a pastor and I don't want to alienate neighbors needlessly, I, you know, I don't let people know that I'm you know, in favor of a particular candidate. I don't mind letting them know my views about political issues, if they're biblical issues, moral issues, but uh, you know, I don't usually put a yard sign for somebody in my front yard. But in this case, the dude's a friend of mine, he's a Christ follower, he's a man of integrity, I could imagine him doing a great job. Uh, in the position, he was uh, the office he was running for. So I said, sure, put the yard sign in my yard. And he, he turned to walk away and he said, great, it's all about building the kingdom, isn't it? Now, I should have pushed back on that line. It's all about building the kingdom. But I was pumping away on the elliptical machine, so I was somewhat distracted. And he was already halfway into the men's locker room, so I didn't call after him. But if I had, I would have said no. Running for political office is not about building God's kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. I think running for political office, especially if you're a Christ follower, is a great thing to do. You know, I'd love to see more Christ followers run for local office and national office. Let's see some biblical, uh, some biblical values being represented in the political arena, right? However, 
That's not how the kingdom of God gets built. That's not how the kingdom of God gets built. In fact, when we read what the Bible says about the kingdom of God, we don't come across verbs like build, you know, build the kingdom, or work for the kingdom, or bring in the kingdom, or advance the kingdom. Do you know what verb is most often associated with the kingdom of God in the New Testament? Proclaim. Proclaim the kingdom. Tell people about the kingdom of God. Jesus modeled this behavior for us. Luke chapter 8, verse 1, and this is just one of many verses that I could cite that say the same thing. It says, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what we're to do. Our job is to proclaim. Our job is to tell others about God's kingdom. And part of that proclaiming is to explain that you enter the kingdom by surrendering to King Jesus. We're inviters. We invite people to surrender to our king. Now, sometimes we forget that that's our primary role. Sometimes we get confused, maybe a little bit prideful, considering ourselves to be kingdom builders. I'm building the kingdom of God. But we don't build God's kingdom. God builds God's kingdom. And our primary job, listen, our primary job is to invite others to enter. So, for example, when you, when you care for the needy on a super second Saturday, which I hope you're planning to do, you know, individually or you're rallying your family to participate in some project or if you're a community group leader, I hope you're getting the troops together to serve in, in some way second weekend into June. But as you serve the needy, you're not building the kingdom of God. As you're raising good kids, if you're a Christian mom or dad, you're not building the kingdom of God. Okay? As, you're, as you're working in your vocation as a Christ-honoring dentist or plumber or carpenter or teacher or business owner, you're not building the kingdom of God. You say, well, wait a second, those aren't important activities? No, they're very important activities. You know, and the, and the reason you should engage in them wholeheartedly is because if you're a Christ follower, you're a citizen in God's kingdom, and this is how citizens in God's kingdom are to behave. We're going to talk more about that next weekend. You know, what, what behavior is required of a kingdom citizen? However, those activities are not how the kingdom of God gets built up. It's not how it grows. The kingdom of God grows by invitation only. We must invite people to enter. Again, let me say, serving them a hot meal at a, at a homeless shelter won't do it. Helping them with their math homework as a good dad should won't do it. Filling their cavities as a Christ-honoring dentist won't do it. It takes inviting. Now, some of you are, you know, you're thinking to yourselves, but wait a second, those other activities... You know, they, they would make the kingdom of God more winsome to the people we're going to invite. You know, and besides, they provide opportunities, open doors to do our inviting. I couldn't agree with you more. However, the kingdom of God gets entered by invitation. You know, I sometimes hear Christ followers talk, you know, as if they're, you know, they've kind of grown beyond this stage. You know, we call it this inviting, we call it outreach, we call it evangelism. 
It's kind of like, yeah, that was Christianity 101 or, 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 or 301, but I'm now into kingdom building sorts of things that are 801 or 901. I want to tell you, you never outgrow being an inviter. This is how the kingdom of God gets built. It gets built by extending an invitation to which people respond. God builds his kingdom. You get to invite others to enter. You get it? Now, speaking of, of inviting, before you get a chance to invite someone to enter the kingdom of God, before you invite someone to surrender to Jesus, you, you usually have to invite them to something else. Okay, so let me ask you, when, when was the last time you invited a neighbor over for dinner? Now, I'm not talking about a neighbor who goes to Christ Community Church or one who's in your community group. I'm just you know, talking about a neighbor who may not go to church at all. What, what about inviting somebody at work who's, who's not a Christ follower to grab a cup of coffee together or to take in a ball game at Wrigley or to go for a bike ride together? If you're a mom, what about inviting another mom to send her kids with your kids to Camp Commotion? That's one of the big reasons we do this kind of stuff, not only for our own children. Moms, you have a unique opportunity to be an inviter. So, so much of the stuff we do for children around here, kids in your neighborhood, they, they don't have the same opportunities. But if you invited the mom to send her kids with your kids to Kids World or Awana or Camp Commotion, or, you'd be surprised how many would respond positively. What, what about inviting? What about inviting as many people as you know to your baptism on Father's Day weekend this year? You say, well, I'm not getting baptized on Father's Day weekend. Maybe you should. I'm not suggesting you get rebaptized if you've been baptized. I'm just saying if you've not yet gone public with your faith, your allegiance to Jesus, like the Bible instructs us to do in baptism, the next baptism service is an easy invite. Get, get baptized yourself and then invite somebody at work or in the neighborhood extended family. Hey, come for this rite of passage I'm going through. And people will say yes. I was talking to a friend of mine recently. His middle school son got baptized at our last baptism celebration. And so they invited five friends, five families, whose sons play on the same baseball team as this guy's son. And all five families said yes, and we're here. It's just an easy invite. Or what about inviting somebody to the next series that we do? You know, we, every four or five weeks we're starting a new series. Two weeks from now we start a series on homosexuality. You say, oh, that would be a bad idea. It would be a bad idea for some people. You know, there are some people you don't want to invite to that series. But, but if you know somebody who's conflicted in the area of sexual identity, if you know perhaps a mom or dad who's just gone through a struggle of a grown son or daughter coming out and it's kind of upset the apple cart in their family and they're wondering, what do I do and what does God's word say about this? Invite. There's hardly a series that we do at Christ Community Church that, that someone on the outside wouldn't find interesting in some way for their lives. So, number one, invite. Number two, invite broadly. Okay, let's go back to Jesus' story. The king sends servants to invite people to his son's wedding banquet. The initial round of invites we saw a moment ago is refused. Nobody's interested. Okay, so what do you do next? Pick up the story at verse 4. So then the king sent some more servants, and he said, Tell those who've been invited, here's another invited, that I have prepared my dinner. 
My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite, 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 invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now I want to park for a moment on verses 5 and 6. This is the response of potential wedding guests to this invitation. Okay, they, they, they turned down the invitation. Some, verse 5, says they, they did it sort of apathetically. They just blew it off, said, I got stuff to do, and they wandered off. But others responded violently. They rejected the invitation with hostility. They even killed the messengers. Now, let me give you a little historical context to the telling of this story. When Jesus tells the story in Matthew 22, he's telling it to religious leaders in Jerusalem during Passion Week. I mean, this is just a few days away from when he will be crucified. So this is kind of a prophetic story, if you would. It's a story about a messenger sent from God the king inviting people to the wedding banquet, and they kill the messenger, who in this case happens to be God's son, which is exactly what was about to happen in Jerusalem. Interestingly, Jesus tells this same story in Luke's gospel, but in a different setting. You know, Jesus sometimes did that. He sometimes told the same story on numerous occasions, much like pastors who use the same awful illustration again and again, and you say, I've heard this before already. But in in another setting, in Luke 14, Jesus tells the story not to a hostile group, but he tells it to a friendly crowd at a dinner party. And so when he gets to the part about the invitation being refused, okay, people are invited to the wedding banquet and they refuse. They don't refuse with hostility. In this case, they, they refuse with indifference. They refuse with apathy. They refuse with lame excuses. For example, one guy says in the Luke account, this is Luke 14, verses 19 and 20, he says, I just bought a field and I got to go check it out. Are you talking about a lame excuse? I mean, if the guy had just bought a field, don't you think he would have checked out the field before he bought it? Yeah. Besides that, the field, this field is not going anywhere, right? So if the dude wants to go to the wedding banquet and recheck out the field after the banquet, he's free to do that. This is, this is nothing but disinterest. It's nothing but, I don't, want, I don't want to go to your wedding banquet. Another guy, another guy turns down the invitation invitation because he says he just bought some oxen he's got to go try them out what another guy says you know he can't go to the wedding because he's recently been married himself you're like well so what say lame excuses so i was reading the parable in luke's account i was thinking about something that happened to a buddy of mine years ago in college Uh, we were sitting around the college cafeteria one day just a group of buds and uh, one of us, Steve, uh, announced that he really liked a certain girl. Now, you got to understand, Steve was a very, very shy individual, which was ironic because he was better looking than any, any of us sitting around the table. A varsity athlete, wrestler, 
uh, a witty guy, man. He could tell a good joke, good story. Uh, but he was very timid, very shy, never asked girls out. So when he said he liked a certain girl, we're all going, ask her out. And he said, no. And we said, ask her out. I can't. Yes, no, yes. Finally, we wore him down. And he said, okay, okay, leave me alone. I'll go ask her out. So we said, well, wait. So he goes off and he comes back a little later. And we said, did you find her? Yeah, found her. Did you ask her out? Yeah. What'd she say? No. She said, no? Why? He looked down at his feet and he shuffled a bit and she said she's got to wash her hair. I'm not making that up. I hope that woman is miserable someplace today. You know? You know? Just totally devastated my buddy Steve. I don't think he asked out another girl the rest of college. Yeah. Honest to goodness. I mean, just throw in the towel when it comes to date invitations. So is that what happens in Jesus' story? When the king's servants run into lame excuses, do they give up? Do they throw in the towel? Do they toss the rest of their invitations into the trash can? Well, that might have been their natural inclination, but the king wouldn't let them quit. He sends them out with a fresh bunch of invitations and some new instructions. Go back to the text. Let me reread verses 9 and 10. The king says, so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet, listen, anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. In Luke's version of this story, The servants invite even the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Now, what does this part of the parable teach us as inviters? Well, when we invite our friends or loved ones to enter the kingdom of God, when we invite people we know to surrender their lives to Jesus, or for goodness sake, when we just bring up Jesus in a conversation, the vast majority of them may not be interested Some of them may express their lack of interest with hostility, like in the Matthew 22 version of this parable. You know, not interested, get out of my face, don't talk to me about spiritual stuff anymore. Some of them may express their lack of interest by just, you know, ambivalence, apathy, and turn and walk away. So should we give up? Should we determine that, you know, we're just not going to bring God up in conversations anymore? Some of you have had this experience. You've been there. And, and, and you, you've concluded, you know, I'm just not going to talk about my faith. I'm just not going to share what Christ is, is doing in my life. Is that how we should respond? Just dump all our invitations in the trash because of those who have been unresponsive? Now, according to the parable, we should invite more broadly. We should invite all the people you can find. That's how the king puts it to his servants in this story. See, we have a tendency as inviters to be bummed out by unresponsive people. But Jesus teaches here that there are, there are plenty of responsive people out there who are just waiting for our invitation. We just got to find them. Now, notice how Jesus identifies who the responsive people are in this parable. In Matthew's version, they're called the bad as well as the good. In Luke's version, as I've already noted, they are called the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. 
Now, what do these descriptions tell us about people who are most likely to respond to Jesus? Okay, what they have in common is a recognizable need. Okay, people with a recognizable need are most responsive. If you've been running into unresponsive people and you want to throw in the towel, start looking for people with a recognizable need. It may be a moral need. You know, in Matthew's version of the parable, the king says, invite the bad as well as the good. The bad might just be a little more responsive than good people who don't think they need a savior. You know, by morally needy people, it may be someone who's gone through a messy divorce and they've gotten gnarly and nasty in the process. It may be somebody who's addicted to alcohol or to pornography or to, you know, to spending too much money, getting indebted. You know, someone who's had a little bit of a moral breakdown. It may be someone who's got a, a relational need. They're obviously lonely. You know, the student who sits by himself or herself in the cafeteria each day. The widow who lives on your block and has no family in, in, in the immediate locale. You know, it could be a parent who's got a wayward child and they're feeling the conflict of a relationship. There's a relational need. It could just be somebody who's gnarly. That's why they got relational problems. Could be a Green Bay Packers fan, okay? Talking about relationally needy people here. It could, it could be not, not a moral need or a relational need. might be a physical need. might be someone, someone you know who's in the hospital right now. Just gone through an operation, just lost a, a, a baby. They're pregnant, lost the baby. Just, you know, there's a physical need. Or they just lost their job. Or they've been out of work for a year and a half. Or they're a stay-at-home stay mom with three preschoolers and a husband who travels a lot. That's a physical need. The most responsive people you find will be those with recognizable needs. Uh, my wife was out you know, about a week or so ago. She was talking to the neighbor across the street, and as Sue was talking to him, he was raking up some leaves in his yard. Uh, he had actually raked, he's got a big yard. He had raked all these leaves to the curb last fall where the city's supposed to come and pick him up, but he had missed the final pickup. And so all winter long, these leaves, this long mound of leaves was decomposing in his front yard under a pile of snow. So the dude's out there with a the rake trying to get this messy, sloppy, you know, the, the, these leaves into, into lawn bags. And to make matters worse, he's just had a back operation, so he's in pain. And he lasts about 15 minutes, and then he tells Sue, you know, I think I need to go inside, so he leaves. And Sue says to me the next day, she goes, let's finish the job. So we grab some rakes and we grab some lawn bags and we rake it up, four or five bags, and we put it aside his garage. Don't say a word. And he figures out who it is because he'd been talking to Sue while, while raking the day before. And so he comes over, and friends, you would have thought we had just landscaped his entire yard. I mean, he was profusely grateful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's like, yeah, we just raked up a few bags of leaves. Find the people with the recognizable need and you'll find people who are responsive. Responsive to your friendship, responsive to spiritual conversation, responsive to invites, to come to church with you. Invite broadly. Here, here's the third bit of instruction. Invite passionately. Now, where do we see the passion behind the invitation in Jesus parable. Well, it's less noticeable in Matthew's version of the story than in Luke's version. So we'll go to Luke's version in just a minute. But first, I want you to take another look at verse 4 in Matthew 22. Okay, the king tells his servants to make sure that the people they invite know how much effort 
how much expense he's put into this feast. Do you see that at verse 4? You know, the king says, tell them that my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is, is ready. In other words, you tell people this is going to be the party of all parties. This is going to be a blowout. There's going to be a ton of food. This is a don't miss event. And then look at the closing line of verse 4. He says, you tell the people, come to the wedding banquet. That line should have an exclamation point after it because come is an imperative there. It's a command. You tell them to come. You insist on them coming. You hear the passion behind the invitation. Now, let me read to you a verse from Luke's version of this parable, and you'll see the passion even more clearly. Okay, this is now after the king has sent his servants out, not just one time, but two times. Second time out, they've gone, and in Luke's version, they found anyone they could find, poor, crippled, blind, lame. They brought them all to the wedding banquet, and yet there's still room in the banquet hall for more. So the king sends him out a third time. And here, here are the king's words in Luke 14, 23. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And when we're talking about Jesus to other people, there ought to be a little bit of passion in our voices. You know, Jesus is not a topic for us to be timid about. You know, we're to be bold. We're to be persuasive. We're to be confident. We're, we're to even be a bit pushy. Yeah, I said pushy. You know, the, the word compel here, looked it up in a thesaurus. One of the synonyms was twist another person's arm. <laughs> That's what, what, what compel means here. Why? Why compel them? Why even twist their arm to come to the wedding banquet? Well, one reason to put a little passion into our invitation, is hinted at in the verse from Luke's version of the story that I read to you a moment ago. The reason is the king wants his hall to be filled. God wants as many people as possible in his eternal kingdom. And because their entry into that kingdom depends upon a positive response to the invitation that we extend to them, God wants us to be passionate inviters. God wants us to be passionate inviters. You know, an, another reason for passionate invitations was alluded to last week when Pastor Jameson preached his sermon in this series. He talked about the fact that the kingdom of God gets entered through a narrow door. That's another one of Jesus' parables. It's a narrow door. Jesus said there are a lot of people who, who don't want to go through that narrow door. They'd rather choose the wide way, but the, the wide road leads to destruction, Jesus says. It leads to eternal death. Now, you want to have some motivation for inviting people through the narrow door to surrender to Christ? You, know, you stop and think about it. Their eternal destiny is at stake. The wide road they choose otherwise leads to eternal death. Does that matter to us? I, I was uh, watching CBS News a couple of weeks ago. There was a story about a young boy, nine-year-old boy down in Dallas, Texas, named Hector. The reason he made the news, uh, Hector's been saving up money, doing chores and allowance and, and whatnot, saving up money to buy a PlayStation 4. Okay, the latest version of it. So he was up to 300 bucks in his bank account. 
when one day he's watching the news with his mom and dad and he sees that a, a lady in the neighborhood died along with her six-year-old son. They burned to death in a house fire. Didn't have a smoke alarm. It's so a little Hector, nine-year-old Hector, he's watching this. And he says, that's no good. And he goes out and he takes his 300 bucks and he buys 100 fire alarms, smoke alarms. And he goes to the local fire station and says, hey, can you guys put these in homes that don't have smoke detectors? That's why Hector made the news. It was saving lives or uh, PlayStation 4. Hector said, I think I, I need to save lives. People's eternal destiny is at stake. That's why we're passionate about our invitation. C.H. Spurgeon was a famous pastor in the late 1800s in London. He, he was passionate about inviting people to enter the kingdom of God through surrendering to Christ. He wanted his congregation, like I want you to be passionate about extending this invitation, about talking of Jesus. In one of his sermons, this is what he said. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Wow. You know, people are going to choose the wide way that leads to eternal death. At least let it be after we've invited them passionately to go through the narrow door, to surrender to Christ, to enter the kingdom of God. When was the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus? And when was the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus as if their eternal destiny was at stake? Because it was. Shouldn't that motivate us to be more passionate in our inviting? And this is why, friends, this is why it's so important when we're praying for spiritually lost friends, you know, neighbors, coworkers, buds at school who don't know Christ. This is why we ought to be praying not just for them, we ought to be praying for ourselves that God would give us a holy boldness, that he would give us a sense of urgency, that he would give us passion with which to open our mouths i got to tell you, I try not to ever preach a sermon at Christ Community Church that I haven't preached to myself first all week long. And so, as I was ruminating on this part of the text, you know, I had to wrestle with, am, am I the inviter that I need to be? Am I passionate about talking to people about Jesus? Do I, do I chicken out? Do I back off of a conversation that could go in a Jesus direction if I were just willing and bold enough to take it there. Now, this is what I'm praying for me. It's what I'm praying for you as well. Here's a fourth bit of instruction. Number four, okay, invite, invite broadly, invite passionately. Number four, invite clearly. There is a, a somewhat strange ending to Jesus' parable in Matthew 22, it, it, it probably made more sense to his first century listeners, as I'll explain in a moment. But pick up the story in verse 11. So the banquet hall is now filled with all these people who've been gathered off the street corners, you know, anyone they could find. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. 
Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, you read this and you might be thinking, well, wait a second. So this guy gets booted from the wedding banquet just because he's not wearing the right clothes? Are you kidding me? I I can empathize with this dude because I hate dressing up for weddings. Sue always asked me to wear a tie and I always refuse, so I'm underdressed. Is, Is that what's going on here? I mean, is this guy without the right clothes on merely guilty of a fashion faux pas? No, let me give you a little historical background here. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' culture, a wedding reception didn't last like a few hours. It lasted a few days. And your wedding host would often give you a new set of clothes as you came. This was a very generous thing to do. You know, so if he gave you the clothes, what are you going to do with these new clothes that he's given you? You're going to stand there and say, "Uh, no thanks, I'll just wear what I got on. Of course you're not going to do that. Not only because he's so generous, but in the case of Jesus' parable, he's a king. He's a king. So what is the point that Jesus is trying to make in this part of his story? Well, here's the deal. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to surrender to King Jesus. And how do you do that? If you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me explain this before. You know, you you get real with God. You you tell God, I'm a sinner and my sin has held you at arm's length. And you get specific and you say, this is what I've done and what I've said and what I've thought and I'm sorry for this sin. And then secondly, you acknowledge that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty your sins deserve. Because the penalty for sin is death. See, if you defy the giver of life, which is God, if you go your own way, you die. So Jesus took your death. That's why he came to earth. That's why he died on the cross, to take your death. And then you put your trust in him. You say to God, I want what Jesus did to cover my sins. I want to be forgiven in Jesus' name. That's how you surrender to Christ. And as you're surrendering to Christ, the Bible says... An incredible exchange takes place. You give Jesus all your sins, and you know what you get in return? You get all his righteousness. I mean, this is like an unbelievable deal. You give Jesus your sin, and he gives you his righteousness. The Bible sometimes describes this as like changing clothes. So you take off the old, sinful, dirty clothes, and you put on the new, righteous, immaculate robe that Christ gives you. Wow. And you're beginning to see how this would tie in with the parable here. You come to the door of the wedding banquet and the the king gives you new clothes. And what are you going to say? You're going to say, no thanks, I'll, I'll stay in my sinful dirty rags. I don't want your righteous robe. Now, as strange as it it sounds to put it that way, I run into this all the time with people. And you probably do too if you're a Christ follower who talks about your faith. You run into people who want to be forgiven for their sins. They just don't want to let go of their sins. They don't want to put on the new clothes. They want to be forgiven for drinking too much. They just don't want to let go of drinking too much. They, they want to be forgiven for sleeping with people whom they're not married to or not married to yet, but they just don't want to let go of sleeping with people that they're not married to. 
They, they want to be forgiven for being a wee bit materialistic and selfish and big spenders on themselves and stingy with regard to giving to the Lord's work and to others, but they just don't want to let go of spending on themselves and being stingy with others. They don't want to wear the wedding clothes. Can a person get into the kingdom of God who refuses to wear the wedding clothes? Okay, what does Jesus' parable say about that? Let me repeat the question, not rhetorically, but actually asking for a response. So Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, St. Charles. Can a person get into the kingdom of God who's not willing to wear the wedding clothes? No. No, what does that mean? That means that when we're talking about Jesus to others and we're inviting them to surrender their lives to him, we need to be clear about what surrender means. We need to invite clearly. We need to explain to people that they can't be forgiven for their sins and hang on to their sins at the same time. See, don't go promising people forgiveness if they're not willing to put on the new clothes that King Jesus is offering them. And by putting on the new clothes, I don't mean they stop sinning from that point on. I just mean that their whole orientation towards sin changes. It's no longer something they want to hang on to. It's something they want to get rid of. When it pops up in their life, they're crying out, Oh, God, help me to change that behavior. I want to wear your clothes. And Let me say something here as we wrap things up. It's hard to say, but I say it in love. And as I say it, I'm going to invite our worship teams at our four campuses to come out. We're going to close with an offering, some worship, one final song in a moment. But listen to me, please. I fear for some of you. Because in a crowd this size spread across four campuses, I've no doubt that there are some, perhaps many, who think they're in the kingdom of God and you're not. And that's evidenced by the fact that you don't want to wear the new clothes. You, you prefer to continue in certain pat, patterns of sin. And you don't want Jesus' righteousness in those areas. You want to be forgiven. You want to know you're going to heaven, getting in the kingdom of God. But you can't unless you repent of your sin and you come clean before God and you say, I want the change in a life that only you can bring. I want to surrender to King Jesus who will become the leader of my life. Now, I would rather you hear this from me today, even if it makes you mad at me, than for you to hear this from the lips of King Jesus on the day that he banishes you from the kingdom of God. And some of you are thinking, well, Jesus would never do, he never banishes anybody from the kingdom of God. Friends, who told the parable? This is Jesus' story about a guy who gets thrown out of the wedding banquet because he's not willing to wear the right clothes clothes he's been given. See, these are clothes you got to work up, you got to earn. These are clothes you can be, be, be given, but you got to want them. You got to say, Jesus, I want to change in behavior. I want to change in life. I want you to be my king. If you've never done that before, do it today. Do it before you leave whatever campus you're worshiping on. In, in your heart, say, I want to give you the sinful, dirty rags I've been wearing, and I want to take on your righteous robe. I want to begin to follow you wholeheartedly. And if you're in, if you've taken on that robe and you're in Christ, your king has asked you to be an inviter this week, to invite, 
to invite people into friendship with you, to invite people into conversations about Jesus, to invite people to stuff going out at the church that will expose them to the good news of Christ. So be an inviter. Invite. Invite broadly. Look for people with recognizable needs because they're going to be most responsive. Invite passionately as if people's eternal destiny hangs in the balance because it does. And invite clearly. Let people know what surrendering to Jesus means, what it means to you.